Hey everyone, before we get started with today's episode, I wanted to invite you to a few special events I'll be hosting this year. Because as much as I do love staying connected online, nothing replaces being able to meet you in person. In April, I'll be in Scotland, first leading a retreat at the Eco Yoga Center, followed by a weekend of classes at Merchant City Yoga in Glasgow. And then in August, I'll be teaming up with David Kyle for our annual Ashtanga Yoga Getaway here in Montana. Go to ashtangadispatch.com for these events and more. Also, I want to thank each and every one of you who generously contributed to this podcast in 2018. Because of you, we continue to produce this podcast without sponsorship or ads. We're a small and simple mother-daughter team, so your gifts really do make a huge difference. If you'd like to make a donation towards 2019, please visit ashtangadispatch.com. We really do appreciate all your support and help. Thank you. Om Sahana Vavatu Sahana Bhunatu Sahavir Yankara Vavahai Tejas Vinavaditamastu Mavit Vishavahai Om Shanti Shanti Welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast and 2019. I'm Peg Mulqueen. And I'm Megan Powell. You know, Megan... I have this unique talent for taking the most simplest stuff and making it complicated. Yep. Is that really all you're going to say? I'm a simple person. I think today's guest, teacher Eddie Stern, would say that also makes you brilliant. Well, you know I won't disagree with that. Okay, brilliant one. When did you think of Eddie's new book titled, wait for it, One Simple Thing... A new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your life. I loved it. Admittedly, as you'll hear in today's episode, I only read the last chapter, which Eddie does say is the most important, because that's when he brings the previous 10 chapters all together and explains not so much what yoga is, but why it works. And in simple terms, he lays it out what could be a really complicated science lesson into a really engaging and interesting look at why yoga makes us feel better and happier. You know, I gave the book to your father to read, and I don't think he expected to enjoy it. Because first, well, he's just beginning. But more than that, it's a yoga book. And so it would probably be like too esoterical or something for him. But then... I caught him deep into it this afternoon, which is kind of adorable. And also why I haven't read the rest of the chapters. (laughs) True. Eddie's book comes out in March, but you can and should pre-order by visiting eddiestern.com. In today's episode with Eddie, we do start to talk about his book, but quickly we got sidetracked because Eddie made a comment on one of my Instagram posts. I just put it up right before we spoke, 
he had corrected my use of the word method. And he gave an interesting explanation, one I asked him to talk about more. Shall we go ahead and roll the tape now? Yeah, let's do it. Here's Eddie Stern. Hi. How are you guys? Good. How are you? Good. We were deep into your book yesterday. Oh, cool. Did you read the last chapter? Um, <laughs> to be honest with you, no, <laughs> I didn't get to the last part. The last, the last chapter is the most important one. Everything up, everything up until chapter 11 is like sort of fluff. Chapter 11 is where it all gets tied together. Well, typical, Megan just whispered to me, she said, I read the last chapter. <laughs> I didn't read anything else. <laughs> and, I re- and I read the fluff, which basically okay. is our relationship in a nutshell. <laughs> uh-huh. Good. I was really impressed with your ability to take something that can be really overcomplicated and uh-huh. simplify it. Thank you. But I think most of most of the people that we admire as teachers are the ones who can take a complicated thing and say it in a simple way. And that is something that, you know, I've been thinking about for about 20 years or so and struggling to, to, to actually do myself because I don't do that a lot. I mean, in my lectures, I'm overly complicated and I go on for hours to, you know, reach a simple point. But if you look, you can take any example of a spiritual teacher who's inspiring and say, wow, they made that really complicated thing simple. That's a sign, I think, of having, and I'm not making this claim for myself, but it's a sign, I think, of having understood a topic fully. Uh, If you haven't understood it fully, then you're going to make it complicated. If you've understood it and embodied it, then you're going to be able to convey it in a simple way. So I think that's one of the things that happens when we begin to embody the practices or the thought systems that we're meditating on, that we understand it so much that it becomes part of us. It's not separate. So we're not explaining this thing which is outside of ourselves, but we're uh, uh, communicating this thing which is inside of us as us already. Like it's not difficult for us. If someone asks us our name, like I'll say, what's your name? What's your name, Peg? Peg. Exactly. You don't have to think about it. You don't have to explain like how your parents conceived you and what the process of birth was and how you were born and the pain your mother went through and then how they had to struggle to find a name for you and and the anguish that your parents went through to come up with the perfect name and the weeks of debate and deliberation and heartbreak and tears. And finally, they called you Peg. And so you don't need to tell me all that to like tell me your name is Peg. You say your name is Peg because that's who you are. So and that, and now you've embodied your name. So it's not really you. It's just a representation of you. Of course, it's a name assigned to you, but but it's part of your psyche. What's your name? Peg. Easy. What's yoga? It's quieting your mind. You know, whatever it is. As soon as you embody that thing, you can say it without having to go through a lot of melodrama. That's one of the benefits of practicing something for a long time. Not that you get awesome at it but that you become the thing you're practicing. So if you're practicing compassion meditation, for example, you want to become an embodiment of compassion down to a cellular level, down to a spirit level, down to a breath level, so that you exude compassion, you know, like the Dalai Lama. And uh, so he doesn't go like, I'm going to do my compassion meditation for three hours a day. So I become 
freaking awesome at compassion. I'm going to be like the most compassionate llama ever. No one's going to best my compassion. You think you're compassionate? I'll crush your compassion, homies. <laughs> my compassion is incomparable. So um, some of my friends say I'm the most compassionate person they've ever met. Now, you don't do that. That's ridiculous. But we do that with yoga and so many other things. So, um, you know, we want to embody that which we practice best we can. You made a distinction on my Instagram recently between mm. method and practice. Yeah. Can you explain that? Yeah. I was probably just being a bit of an asshole. But... <laughs> um, and <laughs> I, I, I think I was responding to somebody else's comment, not your post. So, yeah, the word method comes up a lot. I hear people talking about the Ashtanga Yoga method, the Tristana method, all these things. So method is um, sort of something you do when you want to accomplish something. There's a difference between praxis and, and method or a methodology. A method usually is a technique or something you do to obtain some type of a an other goal. Praxis is a term which has been used in philosophy all the way back to Aristotle and Plato and uh, Kierkegaard and Kant and so many people used it as a way of sort of what we just talked about, embodying something into your into your life. It's a way of like applying or practicing ideas and the the activity of the practice of ideas and so then what it is is it's um it's not theoretical but it's basically embodied and so that's what a praxis is and that's basically what we're doing we're taking an idea which is chitta vritti nirodaha or the stilling of the activities in the field of the mind and uh, we want to bring that into reality. Um, so we want to realize that through our various activities um, to bring it to life. So it's the engagement of bringing an idea into an activity as a way of living, as a way of being, not as a way of accomplishing. And so when we look at a word like method or methodology, it's a superimposition of something on top of who we already are. Now I'm going to practice the, you know, Ashtanga yoga method rather than uh, an embodiment or an expression of living out the ideas and the, the values we uphold through our actions. And that's the difference between a method and a praxis. So that's why I brought it up. I noticed as I was reading the book, I couldn't find the Ashtanga yoga method in the book. There isn't one. Yeah, I mean, my book's not really about Ashtanga yoga anyway. No. I mean, you know, this Ashtanga yoga primary series, intermediate, all that. It's because Ashtanga yoga is not a method. It is a vidya, which means a science or branch of knowledge or learning. It's also an abhyasa, which is a practice. So in India, they say yoga is yoga bhyasa, the practice of yoga, which in abhyasa is the continual return of your point of attention back to where you want it. These are the two wings of yoga, abhyasa, vairagya, bhyam, tannirodaha, 
how do you attain nirodha, the stilling of the mind or the stilling of the activities in the field of the mind? How do you attain that? By abhyasa and vairagya. Only those two things. Simple. Only two things we need in yoga. So abhyasa is the returning, continual returning of your awareness back to where you want it. And vairagya is noticing when your mind has gotten wrapped up into any of the permutations of the three gunas and uh, noticing that you've got lost in those objects of the permutations and then bringing it back to a still point. And those are like the two things. So, you know, nowhere does it say it's a method. It says it's a practice and it's a practice which is continual. So the I've been listening to the Ram Das podcasts. Megan, are you familiar with Ram Das? Yes. Okay. Because mainly only old people like me and your mom <laughs> know who he is anymore. <laughs> so... I first heard Ram Dass speak in 1986 or so in New York City and truly like my mind was like blown by by him and the whole thing. And then I read everything I could by his and I went to his lectures all the time and he was really one of my first most inspirational entryways into the world of yoga and meditation and things like that. So, it, which is true for many, many, many people. He was really a torchbearer. So I came across his, his, actually what happened was Jocelyn, my wife and I, we were on our way back from Buenos Aires uh, from a workshop in, in December. And we're still in December, so a few weeks ago. And we were changing planes in Atlanta. And in Atlanta, we had a couple of hours. We went into the, um, into the book and magazine place and we were browsing around and I picked up the latest issue of GQ magazine because, you know, I, I like fashion and design and stuff like that. So I wanted to see what all the guys are wearing this season. And I flipped over <laughs> and frankly, it's not that great. So I, I, I flipped open the magazine and there was this huge spread on Ram Das. It was like a five or six page. And I was like, oh, my God, what's he doing? And, you know, I definitely picked up the right magazine. So I read through the article and it was it was awesome. And the guy talked about how he'd come across the Ram Das podcasts and how he and his wife had listened to basically all of them. Now there are 173 of them. And uh, how they had inspired him. And, and I, from what he was saying, I thought, oh, maybe they've taken some of his old talks and made them into a podcast, followed by newer stuff. So when I got home, I, I sub subscribed to the Ram Dass podcast. And um, sure enough, starting from the beginning, he begins with his first talks in like 1969 or so, going through his whole journey. And uh, I'd heard a lot of them before, but revisiting them has been amazing. And in, in the very first podcast or the second podcast, uh, you know, he's explaining all these things and it's a little bit esoteric and he's got a new audience of people who aren't exposed to this. And he says, you know, this isn't like some advertisement for Ashtanga yoga. You know, I'm not trying to all indoctrinate you into Ashtanga yoga. <laughs> and I thought this is hysterical. This is like exactly Basically, the thing I've been saying for years is that like Ashtanga yoga is not a brand of yoga. And of course, Sharad has been saying the same thing for years also. It's not a brand of yoga. It's a classification of practices that fall under a heading of the eight limbs that can be practiced in many, many different ways. So there are many different ways of practicing asanas. There's many different ways of practicing yama and niyama, many different ways of practicing pranayama, many different ways of practicing pratyahara, etc., etc., etc. 
many different ways of practicing samadhi, but really only one way of practicing moksha or liberation, and that is to become free. So all of the subsequent limbs, and of course moksha or liberation is not one of the limbs, of, and samadhi is not the end point. It's just one of the practices, and there are eight different ways in the Yoga Sutras of doing that. But across India, many different ways of practicing samadhi. So Ashtanga Yoga is a classification. That's all. And within that classification of the eight limbs, tons of different ways of doing it, which is why in North India you have people teaching Ashtanga Yoga in a different way. In Southern India there are different people teaching it. Baba Ram Das, uh, the Indian man who is uh, Ram Das is uh, Swami Ram Das, and he's Baba Ram Das also. So the name of the yoga he taught, long story short, was Ashtanga Yoga also. A lot of different methods of teaching Ashtanga Yoga. And because of the, you know, the nature of the Western mind towards branding and consumerism, what we are practicing these days is taught by Patabi Joyce. We come to know of it as Ashtanga Yoga. And so that's where a lot of the confusion has settled in. I think this is like a very difficult point at this stage of the game to to deal with. How do we distinguish? distinguish uh, the Ashtanga Yoga of Patabi Joyce from the Ashtanga Yoga of tradition, which is, you know, just the, the generic eight limbs. And how do we distinguish those? Some people have tried to do that by calling it Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga. So I'm sympathetic to why people have done that, but it's an incorrect use of the word vinyasa, simply because vinyasa is a technique only applied to asana and it's only half of the technique. So there are two parts. There's the vinyasana and there's the asana stiti. And, you know, this is common, this is nickel knowledge, as we call it. And nickel knowledge is knowledge you can get for a nickel anywhere. So there are two, two parts of the practice. One is vinyasa, how you move into and how you come out from a pose. And the other is the asana stiti, how do you remain stable in a pose? So you have movement and you have stillness. And these are like, you know, I talked about this a little bit in the book. These are like the complementary aspects of our nervous system, the sympathetic and the parasympathetic. Parasympathetic is rest, restoration and repair. And um, sympathetic is movement and activity, creativity, excitement. And we have these two complementary pairs going back and forth all the time because that's how we find balance and equilibrium and develop resilience and all these important things that we need to live happy, healthy, connected lives. So to say Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga is to ignore the other part of First of all, it's, it's wrong because it's not referring to eight limbs. It's only referring to asana. Second, it's wrong because the part it refers to asana is only half of the asana, which is, and it's not even the asana part. It's just the connecting part. All vinyasas do are connect asanas together. It's not even practicing an asana. You, so, the, so it's ridiculous. Anyway, so I think that that's not a great solution, simply because, number one, we've taken the word ashtanga and we've used it in the wrong way. We've branded it. And second, now to correct that mistake, we take another technical term, which only applies to the connecting part of one of the limbs and use that in the wrong sense also. So now we have a, a name, ashtanga vinyasa which is made up of two misconceptions. So it's no wonder we're all so confused. 
I mean, no, no, this, is, this could be taken as, as a rant, which it very well might be, but um, it's one that takes into consideration, like the use of language, like how, you know, uh, the use of language is very important. And we're talking about uh, the language of Sanskrit, which is not a native tongue to us, that we're trying to adopt to address a spiritual practice, which is a calling or a longing that human beings have regardless of language or religion or anything. So we were called to a spiritual quest and we're drawn to yoga. And then we adapt yoga to our lives and then we begin using the terminology in order to express what it is that we're doing. But we're not always using the right words and we're not always using the words that we have that might be the right ones in the right way. So we take words that might not be as specific and use those instead. And then we little by little begin to go away from the point of the thing that we're actually trying to to attain or to get at or to understand. So, um, you know, I, I, that's something which is of interest to me. It's not of interest to everybody. Some people don't care. They think it's okay just to use whatever word seems to fit in. But um, I think that, uh, you know, we could be a little bit more more specific. But in being a little bit more specific, you were less specific, because that's what I realized as I was reading the book. One simple thing. But as I'm reading, I'm applying it to my own practice. So anyone could be applying this to their own practice. It wasn't so narrow that you had to be an Ashtanga yoga vinyasa (laughs) practitioner. You could have any spiritual practice and read the book and be able to apply the principles to whatever practice that you hold dear, right? Well, I mean, thank you. That's a very nice thing to say. That was one of the things I was hoping to accomplish. I mean, I'm interested generally in yoga. I'm interested very generally in science and philosophy and a lot of different things. I set out to write this book, as I said in the introduction, because I noticed that you could have all these different types of people with different types of problems, everything from heart disease to anxiety to being on a spiritual quest, at the same time coming to any yoga class, you know, an Ashtanga yoga class, a hot yoga class, Shivananda, you name it. Um, you get a whole mix of people looking for different things that they need to work on, that they feel need, they need to address in their lives. Do the same thing and all feel better. How does that work? So that's why I called it one simple thing. Well, first of all, it sounded like a catchy title. And uh, and it came about because I was talking to my publisher and we were talking about titles and all of my titles were way too long. You know, he was asking me to describe what I was writing about, basically. And I said, well, this is the thing, you know, how I'm. How is it that all these different people, they just do this one simple thing. And then I said, oh, that could be a good title for the book. Then, of course, I had to quantify it or qualify it with an extremely long subtitle. Um, A new look at the science of yoga and how it can transform your life. So that's the basic thing. And so this is not specific, like that Ashtanga yoga fixes all the different problems. Every kind of yoga that I've seen uh, that... And these are the ones that I've seen. I'm not including the ones I haven't seen. Like I haven't seen goat yoga. I haven't seen hot naked yoga. I haven't seen, um, you know, any of the, a lot of the new ones. I haven't seen them. Uh, But I have seen a lot of the ones up until, you know, the 1980s. And they all seem to work. 
to a, to a certain degree. So that's what I became interested in, and that's what I tried to write about. What are some of the underlying threats that, or the underlying benefits of yoga that are found across the board, generally speaking? So I look to research, and I look to other things as well, and that's basically what I wrote about. And in the end, it all ties together, as Megan knows, because she read the book to the, to the end. Uh, uh, it all gets tied together with the nervous system. And one thing that Bobby Joyce spoke about a lot was the, uh, for Guruji, for all the people who know Miss Guruji, and Bobby Joyce, for those who don't, uh, he spoke about the nervous system a lot. And that really intrigued me back in the 1990s and early 2000s when he was alive. And it was definitely one of the things which led me towards studying the nervous system and engaging with scientists and doctors. Uh, so it all ties together with the nervous system that all the practices that we're doing are affecting the nervous system in one way or the other. We talked about that on the last podcast, um, the four practices or the four neural exercises of Stephen Porges, which are posture, breathing, behavior, um, and postures, breathing, behavior, and vocalization. Um, and we do that. We do yoga postures. We do pranayama. We behave well, we hope, with yama and some of the niyamas. And we vocalize by chanting and by doing pranayamas that have humming sounds or hissing sounds in the breath, like ujjayi pranayama, or the voiced breathing that we do in practice. So we're, we're hitting all those points in all of the yoga practices that are done, really, in all of the different schools. They're addressing those. And what those different four categories are doing is they are tuning and toning the nervous system in particular ways that open up pathways to higher levels of integration on a nervous system uh, level, uh, central nervous system, the brain, and all the peripheral nerves going out through the body, the interconnection with listening to the microbiome, uh, to the enteric nervous system, to the nervous system of the heart. All these nervous systems begin to function together, coordinate with each other. Uh, this opens us up to higher levels of brain processing and higher levels of, let's say not higher levels, but uh, an easier way to begin to remove things that are covering our essential nature, natures of awareness, of consciousness, witness state, that when we are living at that level, the natural way we act in the world is to be compassionate, to be kind, um, to be nonviolent, to be thoughtful, etc. Um, so when we when we live as awareness or live as as who we truly are, then all of our actions in the world become expressions of the things that we call the yamas, ahimsa, satya, steya, brahmachati, and aparigraha. And so by tuning the nervous system in particular ways, we are quieting the things that get in the way of living as uh, our true nature. It's been really fascinating watching Megan teach my husband, teach her father, yoga. Mm -hmm. And it's only been because she's she came home from she's working with uh, Dina Kingsburg. She and one of mm -hmm. her assignments was to take somebody who was a beginner and teach them some breathing and some movement. And so mm -hmm. we kind of conned Robert into it, right? Because he has to now do it for her because this is okay. her assignment. And yeah. Dad, help me with my homework. Exactly, right? So all these years, he's kind of stayed clear, and he hears talks about series and poses and, it, you know, who's this and who's that. And so he's upstairs. Now it's been how many months? Probably four. It's been about four months now. He's been consistently coming up. He got a yoga mat for Christmas, 
and his own now. He doesn't have to use anybody else's. And he's, we were over, we were having dinner the other night with my son, who is now also started because he has to as well, because it's part of her assignment. And they're talking about how it made him feel different. And how about that breath? Was that hard for you? Like that, that sound, it was just so amazing to listen to them talk and to hear my husband say, I just feel good. Like he doesn't have, he's, he's a very technical kind of guy, you know, kind of gets off on studying things so that he, he loves to get into the complexity of things, but he has somehow just left this whole experience going, yeah, I think my back's feeling better. Boy, I feel, I feel, I just feel good. He uses these very simple words. I just, I guess I just feel good. Yeah. And and you know what? Remember that for like, for you and I, Peg, that was exactly us 25 or 30 years ago or whenever you started doing yoga. And Megan, you, when you started doing also, like that was exactly how we were when we first started. And then what happened? You know, we started collecting information. We started collecting techniques. We started collecting yoga mats and yoga clothing. And we complicated the issue for ourselves. And so, you know, back to simplicity. Like, wouldn't you just like to feel good in your life, like, and be happy and not be in pain? Yeah, that's plenty. (laughs) I was talking to my meditation teacher. I was having a session with him, and we were talking about kind of that state that you reach after the repetitive, the ritual, you know, whether it's sitting meditation or your asana practice. And I had to admit, I rarely get to that space, but I've taken up basket weaving. And for some reason, basket weaving is bringing me to a space where I feel like I'm absorbed. I don't overcomplicate it. It's a simple thing. And I said, it's ridiculous that it's basket weaving where I can sit and my mind can stop turning so much, yet I'm still very present. And he made the remark, he said, it's if only yoga was taught like basket weaving. (laughs) I'm sure there's somewhere in the Tibetan or old Hindu yogic texts that tell the story of the basket weaver. (laughs) 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 Who attained to oneness with the universe with the weave of the basket. <laughs> you should see Megan's baskets. They're awesome. <laughs> I bet. That's what we said at night. We're just sitting there basket weaving at night now. <laughs> yeah. Krishna said in the Gita that he who sits in meditation but their mind is revolving around the objects of the senses is a hypocrite. If you're sitting there meditating and your mind is thinking of objects, then you're a hypocrite. So it's better to be active in the world and let your mind be absorbed in the action for the sake of the action rather than be a hypocrite. So some activity where you can absorb your mind is good work. Our brain has developed for movement, not just for thinking, but we've developed for movement, for activity. So there must be some importance to acting in a specific way, which is going to align these two things, the world and our activities and our ability to, to pay attention. Well, I feel like I should switch gears and ask you some of the questions that people have submitted and because they're yeah. really quite interesting before we get into geriatric yoga, yeah, um, which, exactly. <laughs> which was people's fun. questions on how I feel now that I'm old. Yes. Basically. <laughs> there was a lot of questions on age and practice for sure. Yeah. yeah. But and I thought like on all my Instagram posts, I look so young. So now that edifice has come crumbling down. <laughs> 
we do remember the story when Megan came and practiced with you for the first time. She had called me. I don't know if you remember that story, but she said, Mom, Eddie wasn't there. And I said, he wasn't because he's always there. And she said, no, but there was this really nice man there. But he looked very, he was too young, but he gave me a spray bottle. (laughs) He gave me a spray bottle and told me I could use as much of it as I wanted for for Garbapandasana. And she laughed and she said he was very funny, but he was too young. And so I sent her a picture and she said, Oh dear, that was him. <laughs> he was the one giving yeah. all the water away. The, the most I had to offer was a spray bottle. As a, <laughs> I, I don't go any further than that. You sprayed her down too. <laughs> it was much appreciated. My alignment is my alignment right? I'm, I'm not too sure. If we'd like some water. <laughs> Basically, that's how it was. Are you are you thirsty, dear? <laughs> it was really funny. So one of the questions was, you were in London recently teaching, and apparently, to her under, to a student's understanding, said you said that you've become more interested in teaching lead classes than teaching Mysore. I think that might have been in regards to when I do workshops. That when I do workshops, I prefer to teach lead classes because you can give more information to the whole group at the same time. And if there are a lot of people in a workshop, if there are 100 people or so, then it's hard to pay attention to too many people in a two-day time period for Mysore. So I think it was in relation to um, just to the workshops. But, you know, if I'm mistaken about that, I'm remembering myself wrong, which happens all the time, then um, then I don't know what I was talking about. Well, that sort of makes sense to me because it seems like along with the book and along with what you've been doing, you become more generalized in being able to reach more people and be inclusive to welcome more. And yet you keep a very intimate home there in Brooklyn where you do have daily Mysore and you are in the room teaching every day and you do have really established relationships with so many students. But yet when you go out into the world and when you, when, with this new book, it, it does seem very inclusive and open. And that would, I would think lead classes would lend itself to that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Okay. Now we can get to age. Okay, good. Okay. So the questions have come in. How has your practice changed as you've gotten older? Um, and how does the practice change or our practice change as we get older? Well, um, I think that we, it's always important to follow nature. And uh, when things become, when they seem like it's time to let go of certain things, then you need to let go of them. And that can happen for a variety of different reasons to people. It could have to do with age. It could have to do with health, uh, with the amount of work that you're doing, your living situations, all those types of things. Our bodies do begin to get less flexible as the years go by. And also it's natural that we begin to lose muscle mass uh, after 50 or 60 years old, especially after 60, you lose muscle mass very quickly. So some strength moves do begin uh, to get a little harder. I think that in the system that we're practicing, people should be more free to think that they have a lot of options that are open to them when it comes to the practice. And that options means that if they're poses that they don't feel like they want to do anymore because they're not working for their body, it's okay to not do them. There still might be others that they can practice uh, that will be helpful. 
when you're learning a practice, you might learn it in a very structured type of way because that has its own benefits, specifically in regards to discipline and in regards to building resilience. Uh, but as time goes by, when you've learned those things, then it's okay to begin to change the way you're doing it depending on your life circumstances. As well as if you start learning this practice when you are older, there are going to be certain things that you might not be able to do for any number of considerations. That doesn't mean that you have to be stuck on, you know, Parashvotanasana because you can't stand on one leg and you can't do Titahasta. You know, you could observe these things being taught by Guruji in Mysore quite often. Um, you don't observe it as much anymore just due to the sheer numbers of students. But there have been some interesting things that Sharad has been doing which are reminding people that it might be okay to approach it differently. In his book, for example, he has one chapter called uh, Ten Postures Are All You Need. And those ten postures are sun salutations and uh, trikonasana A and B and Pashtimatanasana, Upavishtakonasana, Utkatasana, Virabhadrasana, um, Urdhvadanyarasana, and Padmasana, and maybe one or two others. So he's saying, you know, if you can't do everything, you, you could just do these. In Yogamala, Guruji says that after 60 years old, it's okay to just do standing poses, Paschimottanasana, and the finishing poses. He also says in Yogamala that if you don't have time, it's not necessary to do all the poses every day. Just do the ones that you can manage as time permits, and when you do have time, you can do more of them. So we do have a lot of options open to us. Sometimes you just need to be a little bit um, creative and give yourself permission to do those things. Um, it doesn't mean that you can do anything you want at any given time, however you want to, because not all the things um, will be good in different combinations. Um, so if I'm going to begin um, leaving things out of a practice for myself or for someone else, I'm still going to follow the basic format of how primary or intermediate was set up. So I won't, for example, do sun salutations, standing poses, um, upavishtakonasana, suptapadangushtasana, and then come back to janushasana, then go to marichasana C, and then go to marichasana A, and then do navasana. Now, so I'm not going to confuse the order, because the order actually fits together in a very nice way. For example, have you ever tried doing all of the primary postures without jumping back in between the poses? Yes. So doing all the primary poses without jumping back at all, just one after the other. Try it, try it sometime and just see how interesting it is and how all of the poses fit together so well, one after the other. I've done that before. The first time I ever did it was in Mysore when I'd fallen off my bike, a bicycle that is, and I hurt my wrist and I couldn't put any pressure on it. I couldn't do a sun salutation. So um, all I did in class was standing poses, and then I would sit on the floor, and I would do one of the primary poses after the uh, another. And I did the same with, um, with uh, the intermediate poses too. And Guruji was sitting there in his chair watching me do everything. He didn't say a thing. He just said, ah, oh, good. And that was it because I couldn't put any weight on my wrist. So I discovered something really interesting, which was like primary series is structured in an awesomely geometric way. Check it out. It also, it's easy to do. So like if you're feeling lazy one day, you can just do that and, you know, still feel like you did your practice and not have to like break a sweat. 
So uh, that's one thing also, like I won't change the order. And one other thing uh, I'd like to say about this topic is um, uh, another word which I think people could think about a little bit is the word modifications. Um, like there's a pose and if you can't do it like this, then you can modify it. And I think that that word modification is um, sets up this idea that up at the topest level, there's the perfect pose. There's the best way of doing it, the most awesome way of doing it. And if you're not awesome and there's something wrong with you, then, you know, you can modify it for a way that like people who are debilitated or losers need to do it. And I mean, that's like a little exaggeration, of course, but I prefer to use the word options because like, you know, I was saying in class the other day, like, you know, if you go into Chipotle and you want to buy, you know, your vegetarian platter, you have the, the options of getting rice and beans and sour cream and avocado and some lettuce and tomatoes. And, you know, they don't say to you, how do you want modify your taco? Would you like to modify it with some, you know, avocado? No, it's an option that this is something else you can have. So <laughs> Such a good point. <laughs> exactly. You know. Oh, you're not eating like the real taco. You know, you just need a modified one with no whatever in it. Vegetarian taco, of course. So I like to look at these ways of doing any posture and doing any practice as there are different options depending on what it is that you need to do. Not a modification of something that you need to change because you can't handle the real thing. And so that's a little bit of a nitpicky type of a thing. But when we talk about aging and how do you approach your practice when you're aging, this is where I think the word option becomes very important. That there are a lot of different possibilities and all of them are going to be good and useful depending on what you need and how you need to do it. Um, and I think that's a key point. Never feel shame. Never feel guilt. Never feel less than or bad about yourself because you're doing a pose in a different way because that's not why we're here. We're, and you wrote about this in your blog post recently. You know, this is not – that's not what we're doing. We're not here to get good at doing a pose. The only thing we're here to get good at is being a good human being, um, connecting well with others and trying to live our most um, conscious lives possible. That's what we're here to do, and that's why we do yoga. So the, um, the poses need to be a reflection of that. Uh, so there was a question, well, how do I practice now? What's my personal practice like? And um, so I teach a lot. As you know, I teach about five hours a day right now in, in our classroom, and that's five days a week. And then on Sundays, I teach a half day of just about three hours or so. And um, – and um, so I don't have as much energy for doing practice as I did when I was in my 30s uh, and 20s. So right now what I do is primary and intermediate and some of third and a couple of the fourth series poses that I still like to do. Um, there are a lot of the fourth series poses I really don't like to do anymore, so I'm not. My back has gotten too stiff for a lot of them from bending over people five hours a day or four hours a day. And I don't practice quite as long as I used to. I practice about an hour or an hour and 15 minutes of, of the postures each day. And then I do the pranayama practices for about 15 minutes, sometimes 20 or 25, depending. I like to do a short meditation practice. And then I also have our uh, um, the temple and the prayers in the temple to do each morning too. So generally speaking, I'm, 
I'd like to have about three hours every morning to do the practices that I do, but I don't have quite that much time because my day starts early. So if I have two hours to basically fit in everything, um, then I'm pretty happy each day. I need at least two hours in the morning. And, um, but I need those two hours to hit all the different things that are important to me. And asanas are important, pranayama is important, meditation is important, and mantras are important to me also. So I, I like to make sure I, I do a little bit of all those things each day. And I can basically squeeze it into two hours. And uh, one day when I'm teaching less, then I'll give myself more time to practice each day. And, I, and that will be nice also. Some people say, oh, teaching is my practice now. I, I don't think that is... A, a good thing to say. I think that's practice is practice and teaching is teaching. There is a practice of teaching, which is completely different. And that's a practice of being present and listening to the person who's in front of you and communicating in the best way possible. But that's not yoga practice. That's teaching. You can never sacrifice the practice you do to work on yourself to say, all oh, you know, because teaching is always outward moving energy and practice is going to be inward moving energy. Uh, you cannot continually give out energy without replenishing yourself or you're, you'll burn out. Um, and this is what happens to people who are teaching too much. They begin to lose touch with yoga and they lose touch of why they do yoga and what the meaning of yoga is for them because they've given away too much of their energy and their battery begins to be depleted. So when, when you find this happening, mainly it means that you're teaching too much. You need to take a step back and work on your practice to replenish yourself. And these have, this has like a, a, a physiological basis as well in the parasympathetic nervous system, which is that life is uh, demanding. Um, in fact, I spoke about this today in 45 seconds on an Instagram post for the Yoga and Science Conference. Basically, that life is really demanding physiologically, emotionally, mentally, and also demanding on our bodies. And we need to schedule time every day to reconnect with our body, reconnect with our breath, reconnect with our interior sense so that we can find a relaxed and safe and peaceful state again. And this, this happens when everything begins to quiet down. And this happens through yoga and pranayama and meditation and chanting mantras. Uh, when we're able to access that sort of uh, space of safety and contentment and self-knowing through the practices, like on a daily basis or at least, you know, every other day or however often you're going to do it, but daily is better. It's easier to move from that state into the demanding state of the world without getting too thrown off. And resilience is the ability to bend without breaking. That's And that's what we do in postures. We bend our bodies without breaking them, hopefully. That's the idea. So the so in postures, we're practicing physical representation of resiliency, bending without breaking. And the ability to go into the world and deal with the demands without getting thrown off is going to be supported and balanced by this daily or continual going back into ourselves to restore, to rest, to repair, to refocus. Um, and that's how we create this, this resiliency. So with teaching, there's a lot of demand on your body. There's a lot of demand on the energy that you're giving out to people. And that needs to be balanced with the amount of energy that you pay to yourself as well through some daily practice. And it's not, uh, it's not an equation like I teach five hours, I need to practice for, for five hours. I teach for three hours, I need to practice for three hours. It, 
you can do this by taking an hour for yourself, you know, hour and a half at least. But I'd say if you're a teacher and you're putting out a lot of energy, at least one hour spent on your practice would be like a minimum that you should do each day um, so that you remember. You when you talked about your more your practice, your asana practice, you mentioned a, a lot of series in there and yet said you keep it to a few hours that they're sacred. Clearly you can't fit in all of those. No, I don't do them all every day. I don't do them all every day. So, you know, um, it, basically uh, an hour long practice could be up until Navasana, backbending all the finishing poses. Um, and if I take my time, that can basically be like an hour long practice. So I don't do all the postures every day. Um, and I might do a half primary or full primary. I might do half of intermediate. I might do um, second half of intermediate. I might do a few poses from third that I feel like doing. And each of those things will be done on different days. So I don't do everything every day of the week. You know, it's, it's quite often that I don't even do a full series because uh, I, you know, don't want to necessarily rush through if my time is limited to one hour for asanas. So I keep my body in touch with a lot of the things that I've learned. I just don't do everything every day anymore. I only ask because I often hear people say, well, I couldn't do my whole practice or they, the idea of what a whole practice is. I'm just, we need to move away from those ideas. Um, and these are, this is the, the area where the word method becomes problematic because a method is a way of accomplishing something. And if you're trying to accomplish something, you're going to set up a goal oriented modality whereby you'll think that primary series is your whole practice or intermediate is your whole practice. And if you don't do the whole thing, then you haven't done your whole practice and you're going to feel bad about yourself, not yoga at all. So I think it's a really important thing that you've brought up. This word, my whole practice is you hear this a lot. I absolutely think that what, you know, you should set in your mind before you begin, um, what it is that you're going to do. This is how much time I have. This is the practice that I'm going to do today. That's my intention. That's where my focus will be. And then you try to do that. If you can't do it because your goal has been set too high, the bar is too high, you need to adjust yourself and say to yourself, okay, that was pushing myself too much and I'm burned out or I couldn't get there. I should have an achievable goal that I set out for myself so that I know I do that much and then I feel I've accomplished what I set out to do. Now, one of those goals might be that, um, you know, say I want to do all the primary series because um, that's what you've learned. But when you get to Sukta Padangushtasana, you're feeling really tired, you have a headache, or whatever it might be, then you also need to say to yourself, okay, this is what I set out to do, but it's not happening today, so I'm going to stop here because I don't feel well or I'm tired and, and, and still have the ability to fall short of your goal and not feel bad about yourself. I think goals are good things, but they need to be achievable and they need to be goals that can be modified when, when they need be. Another thing is that um, the if you want to practice without any of those ideas in your mind and you just want to go ahead and practice, 
you can also say to yourself, you know, I'll stop basically when I feel that I've done enough or when I'm getting tired. Um, Guruji used to say that when you get tired, you've done enough and that's when you should stop. So even if you set out one morning to do whatever you're going to do, when you get to the pose, which is the hardest pose for you and you do it, and then you do one more pose and you're still feeling pretty tired and you think to yourself, oh, I can just do one more, that's probably a good place to stop. You know, at the point where you say, I can just do one more, you should probably stop before that one more. Um, it's like saying, I can just eat one more slice of cheesecake, you know. I can just eat one more slice of this double-decker chocolate bunch brownie cake. I can just eat one more box of cookies. You know, I'll just watch one more episode of Homeland, you know. <laughs> I love that you take the show these up. concepts and show how absurd they are by applying them somewhere else because there is a mentality, there is a process out there that says, oh, when you're tired, that's when the yoga starts. You know, there's that, do you know what I'm talking about? That kind of, that's... I haven't heard that one. I haven't heard that one, but I think that's probably good for the Navy SEALs, but it's not necessarily <laughs> for yoga. <laughs> Well, that brings me to another, the, one of the other questions that came in, and that was about home practice, which Megan and I were talking about yesterday. Mm-hmm. For us, we, we practice at home all the time. Me and too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you do. A lot of people practice in your home also. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think maybe five years ago, I would have been very reluctant or even afraid to practice afraid would be the better the better word to practice on my own i really don't have much of a choice but this has been the past few years is when my practice actually became my practice like i it really is very personal and I mean, it's, it's a little lonely sometimes, certainly, and it, it would be lovely to have the energy of a community and the inspiration of a teacher, but I will say a lot of the way I practiced maybe five years ago when I had heavy influence um, from heavy outside influence, it never felt like mine. It always felt like I was doing someone else's technique or following the guidance of someone else. But the question really came to you. I was just sharing something that we were talking about yesterday as regard in regards to our own home practice that it feels very personal and I think maybe for the first time in my in my time of practice, it does feel like my own. Yeah. Nice. Very nice. Um, I mean, yeah, definitely we do these things to if you think that the main purpose of yoga is to know who you are, which is actually the main purpose of yoga, um, then, or one of the main purposes, then, uh, you know, being alone is going to be a necessary component of that at some point. It doesn't have to be the main component all the time, but at some point it's going to be a necessary component. And there's going to be engaging with people in, in communities, and then there's going to be periods of solitude. Both of those things are going to be helpful. You know, I've been doing home practice since 1991. Actually, in the 1980s, when I started doing yoga, most of my yoga was in my studio apartment on Thompson Street anyway. 
the yoga classes I would go to a couple times a week and the rest of the week I was in my apartment with a, a yoga book like trying everything out um, just messing around with stuff so that was like pretty normal for me um, and uh, but it's nice to be around community I had a nice experience yesterday I have a um, friend of mine named Marcus uh, is a he likes going to the hot yoga classes and he's a fan of Bikram yoga uh, and he's a buddy and you know we, we talk about a lot of stuff and we hang out and so he said hey you want to come to a yoga class with me and I said sure why not so we've been trying to find a time so finally yesterday I had the time to go to a hot yoga class with him I've never been to one before quite honestly I was pretty apprehensive because um, you know, it's hot and there <laughs> that's really all it's hot. But the main thing I learned from that experience was that yoga schools are really good places. They're, they're good things to exist in the world because, because they're good for people, you know, people go there especially in a busy city or in a lonely city, perhaps also they have a place to be around people who are focusing on connecting with themselves and improving their ability to use their body, their breath, and their mind in any fashion at all. And it's nice to be around people like that, all in the same room, working on the same thing, same basic thing. Be surrounded by that positive energy for a while and then go off to your day. And the experience of going to a yoga class after many, 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 many years of not going to one, really it's been since like the 19... 1990 or 91 that I actually went to a yoga class in New York because like going to Mysore with Guruji or with Sharat's not really going to a yoga class this is like your daily practice and it's for the most part a torture so it's a different kind of an experience but so going to a class in like being in that in a room with a teacher being told what to do and just listening and um and trying to do it was great and I, I really saw the value of community and I really saw the value of, of yoga studios from a different perspective because I'm in one every day but I'm not really in it I have to manage so many things that I forget that that's what I do also like I completely forget like oh this is what I do because I'm on the other side of it you know what I mean I so like this experience of going into a yoga school and following everything the teacher said and having a very positive experience in that kind of a setting and completely forgetting like, oh yeah, this is actually what I do and what people experience coming to, to my school also perhaps. So I see the value in it from a, from a different lens. And that was a very nice experience. So anyway, um, so self-practice, I don't know what the, you didn't even tell me what the question was. We've just the been question is just about on. tips. Oh, tips. tips for, I think it was tips for home practice. Okay. What kind of tips do you think they want? Well, if, if you want me to be quite frank, I think you answered a lot in the first part of the podcast. And also there's a lot in your book. You actually have a whole chapter on tips for practice. I do. 
But I, I think do, we, we measure it often, especially <laughs> in our, <laughs> yeah, you do have that in the book, but especially in our practice, a lot of times we measure things by poses. And so if you don't have a teacher there to either tell you what to do or how to do it, that sometimes people that practice at home can feel quite lost. Yeah. I, I understand that. And um, so one good thing about the current age we live in is we have access to, and we have to thank Al Gore for this, the internet. Um, and because he created it, right? Yes. So there's a lot of really good uh, resources available on it. And um, there's videos to learn from. And there's also ways that we can connect with other people who are practicing at home on the internet too. But uh, I'd say that... Um, you know, if, if the problem is maintaining a daily practice, that is just a matter of mental discipline and choosing an achievable amount that you feel you can do every day and prioritizing it and reminding yourself a lot, this thing is important to me. And if you do it every day for just a few weeks, it will become a habit and then it won't become so problematic. If you say, I'm going to do this for 15 minutes every day, within a three to five week period, it's been going to become normal for you and much easier for you because every time you do it, you're connecting the circuitry in yourself, which reminds you, this is where I want to be. This is what I want to be doing. And the only thing that prevents you from doing that is the thought that I feel lazy or I'm tired or I don't want to do it or whatever. So um, achievable goals, pick a small amount, do it every day. If you feel that you're getting too tired, that probably just means you're doing too much and you need to adjust the amount that you're doing. And then that won't be a problem either. So you do less. Doing the same thing is a good thing to do for a while because it's going to help build a habit. If you change up what you do every day, you're going to get on your mat and not know what to do. And then you'll feel a little lost and sometimes it's harder to get started. That's why having one practice for us as beginners is a helpful thing because we know what to do when we get on our mat or on our cushion and we just do it. And then automatically the inner energy begins to flow and we feel connect, we feel in line and everything's moving in the right direction. Uh, so that is one of the benefits of doing the same thing every day. Not because there's only one way of doing it. It's because you want to create this, this physiological, neurological and pranic flow within you that automatically kicks in as soon as you start doing your practice. So, you know, ah, where I am, this is where I need to be. So those are a couple small things for home practice. Achievable goals, don't bite off more than you can chew. Do it every day until it becomes normal, and um, then it will be easier to remind yourself where you want to be when you want to be there. Thank you, Eddie. I think you are next up, and that's what I was going to ask you. But it must well, be a slow month for Ashtanga Dispatch if you have to put me up again. You, well, you, were, you were last year, January. You're going to start what? off this year. You started right. last year. You're going to start this year. That's amazing. I'm so honored. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. And I had hoped to kind of hold off until the book was ready and published. But I'm thinking people can still pre-order, right? Well, if this is a part of the podcast where I get to pitch my book. It um, is, yeah. Well, <laughs> I was pitching, yes. <laughs> Thank you. No, for, for sure. Um, pre-orders are, are much appreciated. And um, the book is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, 
books a million. Um, there's a bunch of different um, online things where you can pre-order it, and you can. I have a website set up for it, which is eddiestern.com/slash/one-simple-thing, and you can go there and pre-order the book and put in the. A receipt number of the book and then you get sent a free video gift of um, resonance breathing and some other stuff also so um uh yeah i would just love it if, if people pre-ordered it and um, read the book and sent me feedback and discussions started about it uh especially the last chapter is where uh, megan did you feel it all tied together in the last chapter i did it really came together cool Good, because there's a lot of sort of teasing stuff that leads up to it, and then you know, and, and this is exactly goes to the point where it takes me forever to get my point across. I probably could have started with chapter eleven. <laughs> she started there, yeah, and then I went backwards. She, that is exactly how she did it. Awesome, <laughs> awesome. So, did I mean, how as a reader, how did you feel? Did it make sense or? Yeah, it made, I mean, even starting at the end, it without even needing the previous chapters, it totally made sense and was very simple. Great. Super. Did you like it? I did. I loved it. Okay, good. So, great. So anyway, uh, um, Ashtanga Dispatch listeners, you can start at chapter 11 and then go back to chapter one if you want to. <laughs> Cool. Well, I'm honored and thank you so much for your support. And also, thank you so much, both of you, for all you've done for the Ashtanga Yoga Worldwide community by making these podcasts and by speaking to everybody who you feel is interesting um, or that you want to speak to. And that's really definitely a, a, a great service which you guys provide to, um, uh, you know, a, a community that doesn't really seem to have like a centralized location of information to, to go to. So you're pulling a lot of different viewpoints together uh, under one umbrella. So we get to hear all sorts of different ideas and all sorts of different viewpoints. And that's really where dialogue and, you know, begins to happen. Um, so thanks for your hard work on that. And uh, we commend you and thank you. Oh gosh. Thank you, Eddie. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. This has been awesome. Super duper. <laughs> um, and, uh, are you um, are you coming for yoga and science in January, or you can't make it yet? Something going on that weekend. Oh, when is that weekend? It's the nineteenth and twentieth, and Dr. Stephen Porges will be speaking, and Shirley Tellis, Deepak Chopra. A lot of people are coming to speak at it. So amazing! We'll be on our way to Australia. We're going. That's on. what we. I knew you were doing something important. Yeah. You're going to Australia for a year. Megan, good luck. Thank Have you. Have a great time. I say hi and send my love. <laughs> I will. Oh, thanks, Eddie. Thanks so much. I hope you have a wonderful new year. You as well. Happy New Year. And thanks so much, guys. All right. Thank you. Happy See ya. New year. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening today. The Ashtanga Dispatch podcast is edited and hosted by me, Peg Mulqueen, along with Megan Powell. Chris Lucas is our producer. If you're enjoying these yoga chats, we hope you'll take a moment to help support by following Ashtanga Dispatch on Facebook or Instagram and sharing this podcast using the hashtag Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast. You can also help by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts and even rating us or leaving a review. Thanks again. 
And we'll be back on the next new moon with another new episode.